0: Patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've got an excellent episode coming up today about John Adams. I think we've all heard of him at some point in our lives. There's so much to cover, but we will be covering the important bits that really range from around the time of his early life to about the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So in this episode, we will not be covering his presidency, not to mention all the other things that he did after 1776, which really could take a long, long time to cover by anybody. And uh, for the sake of brevity and for the sake of this Sacred Honor Series episode, we're going to be focusing more on what leads up to John Adams and His signing of the Declaration of Independence. Before we get to our main content, I do have a quick announcement for all of you. This week, or this month, I should say, marks the beginning of a new add on to our Patreon memberships, in particular, the highest tier right now, which is the $25 Thomas Jefferson membership. For the Thomas Jefferson members, for any new members who come on and support the show for the first episode of every month, I will be giving a big shout-out to our new Patreon supporters. And I'm very, very excited to announce that for this month and for the first ever Patreon shout-out, I want to thank Gary C., uh, to protect Confidentiality, I'm only going to say the first letter of the last name. I'd like to thank Gary so much for becoming a Thomas Jefferson member of our program. I really appreciate your support, Gary, and I also just want to thank all of our Patreon supporters overall, showing their support for the show, and I truly appreciate their contributions, and I do think they they get recognition For their part in supporting our program, this is what keeps us going, and I just cannot thank them enough. Also, if you haven't had the chance already, make sure to subscribe to our email service. Just go to shermantilosky.com to the pop-up box at the top. If you're using desktop, should appear on the first page. If you're using a mobile device. Get all the latest news about special announcements, episode releases, and even potentially giveaways and bonus material for all of you. This is a really great way for me to engage with all of you, for all of you to engage with the show. I hope you will subscribe at the end of this episode, and make sure to check out and stay tuned for more. Now, let's get into our man for today, John Adams. So once again, Adams, when I, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I looked at the program schedule and I saw that John Adams was coming up, I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, but uh, I know that John Adams is somewhere maybe looking down and you'll um, he'll be, you'll he'll always be wondering how, just how many things I missed on his <laughs> life because he really was a man who did a lot of things for the founding of our nation. And I just cannot reiterate how difficult it is to cover one man's life, particularly John Adams. Uh, But this episode, I want to focus more on a bit of the lead up into a publication that maybe not a lot of people had heard about. Certainly, I didn't even know much about it when I first heard. John Adams was born in Braintree, Massachusetts, on his family farm, uh, which is currently in present-day Quincy, Massachusetts, not too far from Boston and he he was someone you know i read somewhere in here that he he didn't always go to school um i mean he he had a desire to learn uh, but he was not necessarily the best child when it came to perfect attendance or uh, just appreciation i guess of his teacher but uh, because of his dad who told him to say, look, you got to go to school, all right? You will, you will listen to me because I'm your dad. Um, he, will, uh, he did obviously end up going to school and, and learning from that those experiences of the importance of education. Uh, he entered Harvard College in 1751, and he studied under a man named Joseph Mayhew at the time. And he he studied a lot of classics at the time, and um, he he really got more and more interested in the law over time. At um, that time, the French and Indian War was already going on, um, and it's it, you know he probably saw a lot of what was happening as a, a call to service, uh, especially when you know your home territory could literally be taken out of the hands of your home country and into another world power but again adams went into the law track and there was someone there who was very inspirational and now you can say that he went to harvard he got mid to the bar and he already had this interest in law but there was a man named otis um and he did not invent eight elevators but he did do something that was very, very bold at the time, which was called and it was challenging the, the writs of assistance. Now, what it, writs of assistance was was essentially an excuse. I, I call it an excuse. I mean, it just shows you how bad it was. It really was was illegal when in, in the face of democratic values. It, what it really was, it was just a way for British officials to conduct search warrants whenever they could. Uh, for example, if you know you were suspected of. Doing something, and it doesn't have to be anything petty, like or anything even criminal, like stealing. Uh, they could just say, "Well, you know, you you, you probably were somewhere at a mercy or something. We we gotta search you." Uh, I I've no doubt that there were some pretty corrupt royal officials out there, and it's possible that even and when as th- as things kind of really turn towards this uh, very very hostile environment. That royal officials can use this against uh, people who did not uh, obey the crown. They might have been uh, convicted of crimes that they that people never imagined. Uh, Certainly, ones that would would shock the heck out of everybody. Uh, But anyway, this is a way for uh, law enforcement to also help in help out whatever they did these search warrants. Uh, now, and, and you can imagine how intrusive something like this was, and you can argue that you know, there's there's quite a bit of this today. You know, there's we always have these debates about privacy and how that plays out. You know, when you hear a Patriot Act as an example, you know you can get a lot of negativity out of that. Um, so these ideas really, you know, over time in American history, the really transformed. But for him, for John Adams, this to him was a very big wake up call because. As he's listening to Otis James Otis Jr., uh, who might get an episode from me at some point in the future. He is a very interesting guy, even though he did not invent elevators at the time. And I'm sure a lot of people at that time probably wanted an elevator at some point in their lives. Uh, but I really thought that you know when you can imagine John Adams listening to this guy, you know, talking about what. Makes writs of assistance a sign of tyranny. Imagine young John Adams in that crowd, you're listening in on this man's arguments and thinking, you know what? I can I can now see why they're doing this. You know, maybe maybe he didn't realize that at the time. Maybe there's still that kind of allegiance to the crown. But then he's realizing, wait, hold on a second. Imagine what a writ of assistance can do. To a an innocent family or an innocent person, that it could ruin someone's life because if you if you get searched and you hadn't done anything, that can affect you. And that can happen to anyone, including John Adams. And this gets John Adams really really riled up, and he starts really getting riled up when the Stamp Act comes along. Now, before I get to the Stamp Act, you know, I'll comment a little bit about it was a little bit about his personal life. Um, Adams had initially fallen in love with a another woman in the late 1750s. Um, 1759, he met Abigail Smith, and they eventually got married, and they had six children. Um, quite, a, quite an amazing family. and And may I say that the HBO series John Adams. If you have not watched that, you definitely have to watch that because as you're watching that documentary, imagine what Adams is thinking. They do a really good job of depicting the Adams family, not just with the historical sources that they use, uh, but to really convey that feeling of how he was feeling at these different stages of his life. Because it wasn't it wasn't all a constant just one feeling. You know that all the constant feeling of independence. It wasn't like that at all. And this kind of how it leads into a bit of the Stamp Act here. You know, he was really, really, really mad at, obviously, the, what, what the British were doing with a dumb law that he, well, I mean, he thought it was dumb. I think it's dumb. Probably a lot of people thought it was dumb. Uh, the the whole idea of paying additional tax for stamps and no one likes stamps anyway. So that, that it was almost like you're paying the British for basically for nothing, and he, he started to write in the Boston Gazette and he started to be more active. He started to network and to get more engaged with um, this uh, opposition to the, the Stamp Act. He authored something called the Braintree Instructions, which was a, a letter that essentially opposed this act. Um, and this was probably one of the first... You could say, you know, major documents that Adams uh, helped pioneer himself. You know, and, th- and you can certainly point to a lot of things that he did in his life. But this was, you know, in 1765. We're still early in the days of the American Revolution. When the Stamp Act was repealed in early 1766, um, Adams wanted to go back to law. And something was, and you know, occasionally the Townsend Acts came along, and so that was kind of problematic for him too. Uh, But it was on March 5th, 1770, when one of the most heinous acts was ever committed in the history of the United States, or what would be the United States. The Boston Massacre resulted in multiple people killed— And there was just widespread anger, you know, and there's a whole, you could do a whole episode about the Boston Massacre, but just for the sake of brevity, you had people like Crispus Attucks shot and killed, Um, and yes, you know, you can, you have both sides, obviously, very, very, very tense, but someone, you know, you have to have a system of legal procedure here. You have to have someone represent the British soldiers just as you would do with the side of the victims. But Adams was going to be the one to step up and represent the British side. Kind of shocking, right? Especially when you first read about Adams, you're thinking independence, you think of the Declaration of Independence, but that's not how he really started his career. He's He notably represented the British soldiers at the trial after the Boston Massacre. Well, let's step back a little bit here. You've got the British side already very unpopular with all the things that they represent. And look, Cap- Captain Thomas Preston and you know, the other guys—they, there's, there's so many reasons why you know they're super duper unpopular. If they didn't realize that, they certainly would. Pro- hopefully, later on down the line. Uh, but they were obviously they felt harassed and they felt like. They, someone had to do something to quell the situation. Uh, on the other side, you had the colonists who were being aggressive, throwing rocks and stones and whatever you can think of at the soldiers there. Uh, but then you had the victims there. So who who is going to be the one as that's going to be part of the process to ensure that both sides are heard? And Adams is the one who ensures... That both sides are heard. You know, he doesn't represent both sides cl- clearly, but he knew that if he just stayed quiet and just let the narrative run on one side, he knew that it would cause even more problems with regards to any kind of legal ramification or solution to this whole kerfuffle that was going on in the colonies. And he even said this is a really really amazing quote he said quote facts are stubborn things and whatever may be our wishes our inclinations or the dictates of our passion they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence it is more important that innocence be protected than it is that guilt be punished for guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that they cannot all be punished But if innocence itself is brought to the bar and condemned, perhaps to die, then the citizen will say, whether I do good or whether I do evil is immaterial, for innocence itself is no protection. And if such an idea as that were to take hold in the mind of the citizen, that would be the end of security whatsoever. Six of the soldiers were acquitted, and after amazing performance, and I say amazing not just because I'm a fan of John Adams, but because a lot of people, I'm sure even both sides, were just absolutely shocked at how brilliant Adams was in outlining his defense for the British, and to work with the justice system, to be part of that system, but to do something that would be larger than himself or the disputes that were occurring in the colonies. That quote I read you it, it really encapsulates so much of why Adams not only built his reputation and certainly I'm sure he had a lot of clients for his law practice cuz you know you got to make ends meet somehow still but it really it was just a it's just a wonderful quote that really encapsulates why we have the rule of law. And Adams really is still is will always be at the forefront and be one of the forefathers of this idea Uh, i think the very first one facts are stubborn things whatever may be our wishes our inclinations or the dictates of our passion they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence is is that not any more relevant than as it was today imagine the world we live in today with social media with media and with press and all all the things that are happening in this world does that not apply oh it sure does it sure does adams becomes even more popular with a bigger name uh but he, he you know he he was always very he was always wondering about this idea of independence he was not the only one by the way you know, as you might know, you know John Hancock was kind of in a similar situation. Um, the, we had some some other signers too who you know may not have been you know by the forefront. I, I think even Samuel Adams, to some degree acted in ways that uh, were not necessarily fit in with the, you know all independence all out all in on independence sort of mindset. Uh, but Adams over time realized that that this was not going to. End in a way where the colonies and the royal authorities could reconcile. You know, the, there's there's so many different options that could be played out, right? Even if you look at the letter he wrote, the Braintree instructions, and all that, th- those were not written with a clear independence agenda. Um, he even, it, as a member of the Continental Congress, the he was still working with people. He still interacted with people who thought differently about independence and to the extent in which the colonies should maintain relations with Great Britain. For the sake of brevity, I'm going to briefly mention the Boston Tea Party. You know, we we're all pretty familiar with the events of that, and and Adams really felt that this was a huge, huge moment of because this was a finally a time when. The, the calls really had that courage, and this is kind of how I'm reading you know, his reaction to it. He really saw this as a very, very needed thing to happen, not, not just because you, know, you obviously destroy something valuable with, in front of the British, which is pretty funny, but it's also a, a sign of courage that people could stand up, that someone could say, all right, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to sit here and yell and call the British all the names in the books, because that's not going to lead to prosperity. That's not going to lead to freedom. Whining and complaining about the British is not going to bring any freedom to anybody. I'm going to take some action. And that's exactly what we saw with the Boston Tea Party. Now, if we were to fast forward here to 1774... In part because of John Adams' cousin Samuel Adams, whom we covered in the previous episode of the Sacred Honor series. The first Continental Congress convened, and John was part of the Massachusetts delegation. And uh, this was in response to the Intolerable Acts, which uh, were essentially a series of legislation that punished Boston and Massachusetts overall. It was essentially uh, that really big act. You know, if you set aside the Stamp Act, the Townsend Act, those were just ordinary legislation on taxes. This was really this big step for the Westminster government, for the royal authorities to centralize the British control over the colonies and to try to prevent other colonies from becoming like Massachusetts. Very, very rebellious. Adams was... Task to uh, work with twenty-two other members of something called the Grand Committee, and their job was essentially to write and list things that the First Continental Congress was not content about, what the colonists were not content about, uh, and, and ultimately endorsed. And, and, excuse me, and ultimately resulted in something called the Suffolk Resolves. I think the Suffolk Resolves deserve an episode in themselves but for the for this episode essentially this was a way to really show the king king george III, that we're not too happy without what you're doing <laughs> we, we will be throwing some ideas out there like independence um, and we really mean it because of all the things that you're doing on this list here and the Suffolk Resolves really touched upon a lot of the things that people were already angry about. But it was all, you know, but the boycotts were obviously a huge thing. It was all about having essentially your own government running things instead of allowing the royal authorities to step in. Really, not refusing to give the Brits any kind of money for taxes and and all the rest. And there were a number of things that were part of the Suffolk Resolves, but they were all generally within the same kind of ideas of the protests and the, the ways that the colonists were reacting towards the authorities. In June of 1775, uh, he was part of that group of people who helped to nominate George Washington as commander-in-chief And I I always thought that Adams, even though he's a Massachusetts guy, he was actually very, very pro-Virginia. It's it's pretty remarkable, and I'll mention a quote a little bit later to really show you what I mean by that. And when 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 all this was happening, and this is really leading more towards there's the end, towards the climax of today's episode, which is really this the 1776. The moment when Adams is part of that group of the committee of five, that the five individuals who were charged with drafting a first draft of the Declaration of Independence. And what's, what's really interesting about this is, you know, he was, again, Adams was not one of the, not the first guy to come up with Independence, but he he really had that trajectory of moving towards independence over time. He he saw more evidence that led up to that case. If it were to use in more lawyer terms, Adams was someone who also you know as part of the committee of five. He was already a very influential individual, uh, but he was the one who helped draft the beginning of something called the Lee Resolution. And the Lee Resolution essentially states that these colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That is kind of like the the gut punch. I call it the gut punch of the Declaration of Independence. That just says this, this is not only a gut punch, but after the gut punch to George III, we are going to be free and independent states. So this was really that first idea, that seed of what these group of colonies were going to be much further down the line, albeit through some very, very tough fighting. When Adams was part of the committee of five, you know, initially Jefferson wanted Adams to write this. But Adams uh, I, I don't think I'm the best person to write this. And this might, might sound kind of strange because Adams, you would think that Adams was a lawyer who obviously knew how to write. I mean, he wouldn't have written a lot of this stuff had he not been a great writer. Um, but what's interesting is when Jefferson asked him, he said, "Why, why, why don't you want to r- write this?" And Adams said, "Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you." I, I, I he actually initially said, "Okay." I, I I have my reasons. And Jefferson's like, okay, please tell me your reasons. He said, okay, number one, you are a Virginian, and you should be in charge of this intent to George Washington. I, I don't know where this love for Virginia is coming from, but, but you might have just seen Virginia as, you know, in many ways, and I'm not sure if Adam's just share with this view. I'm just kind of sharing my view here. But, you know, Virginia was... A representation of the, you know, very, very much the beginning of the colonies, because you think of Jamestown, you think of uh, Roanoke and those early settlements of Virginia. Virginia really defines so much of what the English colonies were. Um, and that might, that might be a bit of a representation. Now you can argue that Massachusetts also have seen, had a very, very big role in this, uh, but he, he probably might have just viewed Virginia in that way as more of a symbolic uh, aspect of. You know what what the colonies were and what they were now, and they were no longer going to be colonies anymore. That this, if Virginia were to lead on to this effort of independence, that that would mean something bigger. Just a hypothesis is out there for all of you to think about. And uh, Adam said, number one, you got to be you are Virginian. Number two, uh, he said. Reason second, I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You're very much otherwise. Reason third, you can write ten times better than I am. Uh, you can write, I should say. Reason third, you can write ten times better than I can. And Jefferson is like, okay, all right, well, I'll do it. I'm gonna. Uh, so, well, there, there you go. I, I, guess, I guess that's all you got. You just ask, just ask Adams why, why do you want, why did you not want to write this? He gives you very, very straight answers. Something that, uh, which is something that you wouldn't you would think that would come out a lot more uh out of a lot of elected leaders but John Adams is John Adams so there's nothing nothing else anyone can do about it he made up his mind <laughs> um i i i really I really like this this little quote from Adams because he he could have been someone who'd been just like oh I gotta write it because I did this I was looking at me I was at the at the trials, but but he chose not to. I thought that was a very interesting choice. And he recognized Jefferson. It was his friend, someone whom he developed good relations with. He recognized that his friend had better strengths. And Jefferson, I think, was also trustworthy enough to trust Adams and say, well, if that's what you think, then I will go with what you think. This very, very interesting engagement. And of course, when the when the draft is offered and everything, we – obviously know much of the story and Adams of course says that the second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. now you would obviously a little bit off okay two days off I guess that's not bad honestly because there were so many episodes throughout history anyone can probably imagine oh there's no way that the the colonies were gonna you know, declare independence but it happened. And no doubt, because of that hard work, you know, Adams working on all these committees, you know, he was drafting correspondence, negotiations with other committees. Uh, he was just so so occupied with everything that he that he was doing. Now, I want to transition into something a little different here, and this is really uh, goes to a publication that he wrote in 1776, which offers his views on what a Republican government looks like. Republican government, not talking about the party, I'm talking about the way in which a government is fit, so it represents the people with those democratic values and principles. And I'll just read a couple of quick quotes from here, but this, is, this I think, is very, very good writing, um, and I want to share some of it with you all today. Adams really starts off this document here by saying that you know there's there's been all throughout history there's been all this talk about you know what the best form of government is or um, and and it's, it's interesting that he starts what well, he said that uh, he was quoting from from someone here uh, Alexander Pope he says that uh, you know there there has to be a true Foundation. There's just some governments that are better than others. You know, they were. You know, I think he was kind of refuting the argument that people were just going around saying, "Say, well, you know, governments. You know, some are good, some are bad." And I, I think, and maybe there's maybe some of them are just really well run, and some of them are just really not so well run. And and I don't think Adams really agreed with this because he's saying, "Hold on a second. You, you know, you're telling me that." You know, you got to wait until a good king comes around or a good tyrant comes around. Then then you can enjoy prosperity. Well, what happens when a bad guy comes in? Now what do you do? There's something, it's not maybe necessarily about the people in it. Now, you want to have great people in government, but there's it's not just about the people. I think it's about the system and the foundations of a government. This was how, what he was trying to get at. And I'll, I'll get to a, a point there that'll lead to the takeaways at the end of this episode. Before we get to that, he really describes something or he he argues for something that it was perhaps maybe not considered as much back at the time, which is the fact that you cannot have one assembly. You know, you, is really, when I mean assembly, I mean like assembly of members, of representatives. You can't just have one chamber. Um, because when he outlines the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches, he realizes that if you just get more guy, more people into government, that's not going to distribute power. You need to have different bodies with different powers. You, the courts need to have their own powers. The legislature, which itself is not just one body, it's it's more than one, because you need to have more than one Assembly body to ensure that uh, that one does not become tyrannical or become uh, you know, power uh, power hungry, and you also need executive branch that needs to run all these things, and so they all have the, the this accountability structure. This is really one of the seeds of this American idea of the checks and balances system, and he really just basically describes what a single assembly does and why it's so dangerous to a republic. And he also obviously just does he he does so much homework on his readings. He quotes a little bit from history, even quotes, you know, even references Confucius and Muhammad. I mean, this is how how depth of a uh, how much breadth there is in his reading. Uh, it kind of reminds me a little of, Je- of John- Thomas Jefferson. You imagine the library that he used to have. No wonder those two guys got along. Probably, probably if the, if there was nothing else they could talk about, they probably only talk about their libraries. You know, but uh, they, anyway, they, uh, anyway Adams was very much curious about what the role of government was, and what not just what government was, or what, what the people that make government. But it's also, what what does government look like? He uses some really, really amazing language that uh, is just very well put together. He said that, he was talking about the representative assembly. What is this assembly of the legislature going to look like? He said it should be in miniature, an exact portrait of the people at large. It should think, feel, reason, and act like them. That it may be the interest of this assembly to do strict justice at all times. It should be an equal representation, or in other words, equal interest among the people should have equal interest in it. Great care should be taken to effect this and to prevent unfair, partial, and corrupt elections. I'll stop from there for now, but think about the issues that come out with this. Uh, Gerrymandering, you know, the redistricting that happens every 10 years where Democrats and Republicans basically redraw districts to favor uh, their own political interests. Think about how that in itself you know, can undermine the confidence people have in a legislative body. He sent an exact portrait of the people at large It has to be as close to the people as possible, not as far away. And I feel like in modern society, we, we've kind of lost that at times. And yes, it is a big country. It is a long way from Washington, D.C. to Alaska. But how can we make it so that Anchorage doesn't feel like it's – I mean, it it can and should feel like it's very, very distant from Washington. But when it needs Washington, D.C., how can Anchorage or Juneau or Honolulu, all these places far, far away, how can they be closer to government when they need it at most? These are some very, very key questions that kind of come into play. Now, as we kind of move towards to our final part of our episode today, which is when I leave some takeaways for all of you from John Adams, you know, John Adams is uh, just one signature behind his cousin, uh, but nonetheless, someone who was super, super influential in the way he carried himself and also the way he acted in ways that people probably would never have wanted to, not to mention his behavior in the First Continental Congress when he's dealing with people who were thinking, oh, you know, maybe we should maintain some ties. And, you know, he he was, he eventually became very animated. said, I, I don't see this happening. I don't see any kind of evidence. And he was very, very clear about that when he was representing the british soldiers earlier like i mentioned at the, the boston massacre trial there were probably tons of people including himself he probably was very very mad at what was happening but he he could not let that subway not to mention that he he got really good business out of it which is all which you you got to admit it's also an unintended benefit but more importantly he understood that hey, if if this doesn't work out then then i don't have a business None of, no one has a business because otherwise anyone's, everyone's just going to sue each other until the end of the time. Uh, he recognized something bigger and he, he decided to do something different and help restore some kind of rule of law, even when people felt like it was being lost and slipped away in those, in those terrible times. The first takeaway I want to leave is we have to really learn how to build positive affinities. Maintain them when advocating for positive change, even when that change is very slow. Because, like I alluded to earlier, you know this independence movement wasn't just a light switch. It wasn't like okay, the Boston Tea Party did it, or the Boston Massacre did it, or the Intolerable Acts did it. Then all of a sudden, you know, Samuel Adams, George Washington, all the others are like, "All right, Independence Time." No, it was not like that. There were there were it was it was a process that took years. It took years for John Adams to realize independence. And when we bring it back to modern times, I don't understand. I understand that people want major change. And it's good to have these high ambitions for positive change. But to be unrealistic about it and to break away from the pack just because you want something right now that can't be attained right now, it's not worth it and Adams knew that he had to start building these connections that's you know that's how he got into politics that's how he was able to work with all these different members in the continental congress and to build negotiations to persuade some other people even thomas jefferson was not totally on board with him Pence, until uh, until 1776 so change is very slow. So when I say in this takeaway, even when it's very slow, I really mean when it's often very, very slow. Because positive change really is slow. But if we if we learn to attest to the patience and the hard work that comes along with positive change, we'll we'll be able to see the fruits and enjoy the fruits quicker than you think, and it, it'll be more long longer lasting. Number two, always have the democratic principles of the rule of law when advocating for positive change. I I say this because, you know, the thing – go back to the Boston Massacre. Uh, You go back to First Continental Congress. In those times when the British were in their ways, right, with all the the authoritarian things that were doing to to the colonists – there was probably every single little feeling out there across the colonies of people thinking, okay, I if this if this British guy is going to do this to me, I'm going to do the same thing to him, you know, like an eye for an eye sort of thing. And Adam, it's people like Adams who step back and say, well, hold on a second, I, I'm not going to go down that road. If if a British officer were to search my home without a search warrant, I'm not going to replicate his acts. I'm not going to you know, let the rule of law collapse within my, in my hands. Not to say that it's only within one person, but everyone is watching our actions. We should be an embodiment of what we want to be. We want to be a country of democratic values and principles. Let's act that way within ourselves. That's what Adams did when he defended the British soldiers. He didn't he didn't like the the Boston Massacre. He just cared about the fabric of the rule of law, which he saw was it was being lost. And so that's why it's important to have the rule of law. Now, you can obviously fight to change laws, but this the thing about how change happens. An example comes out of my mind, Brown versus Board of Education. You know, sort of Lamar Supreme Court case, unanimous decision um, to Rule that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional that was done through a process through a through court proceedings, through hearings and testimonies that all happened so when we think of positive change, it doesn't come from you know the viol- just the violence and all that stuff and all that all that and all that criminality, especially during these times i mean i've seen I've seen protests and riots and all the rest. What are these people thinking? Do these people not have any understanding of what positive change comes from? The positive change doesn't come from the person who broke a window at Starbucks. It happens when people do things that are meaning to bring people together, but also to do it in a civil manner, because that is how they represent their movement. They represent they show that their movement is all about civility and about Delivering peace, even when others are trying to undermine democratic values. So, always have the rule of law on your side, advocating for positive change, even if you're trying to change a law. Always keep in mind those, those principles, just like how John Adams did so when he defended the British soldiers. And lastly, our form of government should be reflective of the moral character and the lifestyle choices that we want to have. I find it's because uh, I want to read a quote from that 1776 pamphlet, Thoughts on Government. By the way, isn't that a great title? I, I wish my I wish every single political science dissertation would start uh, started with that. Thoughts on Government. Just be like, Sherman, what, what are your thoughts on government? Okay, here, here we go. I'll, I'll just give it to you right now. Um, all right, for, the quote I want to read here is this. A constitution... Founded on these principles, the principles that he outlined earlier, um, introduces knowledge among the people and inspires them with a conscious dignity, becoming free men. A general emulation takes place, which causes good humor, sociability, good manners, and good morals to be general, unquote. The reason why I read this to you is because I really point to the last part here, which is good humor, sociability. I don't know about you, but when I read about politics nowadays, I don't—I rarely see any humor. I rarely see members of Congress, you know, out in the open having a great time. That's not to say that they're not doing anything, but it—it it, it should reflect the lifestyle and the society that we want to live in. We don't wanna be living in a society of toxic politics or of people just being serious about everything all the time. That's not how our society should be structured. We we can do a lot better than that. And it also goes to show, though, that the way people behave, that the structure of our government, when I, when I mean structure, I mean like the checks and balances, those powers. When people, whether they're good or bad, serving in government, when they hit a wall and they realize, oh I don't have the legality to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, okay, well, I got to find another path to initiate change. If, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We, we don't see that kind of example anymore. We often see you know, people shouting things on Twitter because they didn't like this policy or they're calling someone names, even though oftentimes – Americans are just really fed up with this language. They don't want to. They don't want to see our leaders act in this manner. And not to mention that politics is be, is really eating up so much of life nowadays. We really have to step back and realize that politics is important, but it's not everything. Something that I've noticed a lot too, and something I've been saying on some of the interviews I've been on, uh, talking about American history, American politics. We really have to be conscious. About this the space in which we have politics roam around, because if we don't, if we just let it rogue, it's it's really not going to be very very pleasant. We're we're going to just always be in a political world. There's so much more in life, and not to mention the fact that we we need good, we always need good manners, we always need good morals, and the system government. It it won't everything. It's not going to come out easy. It's not going to happen overnight. But we have to always improve it because that is how we become better people. That is how society starts recognizing. All right, we thought this was wrong, but we accept it as a right, or we thought this was right, but now it's wrong. We start to we start to really sharpen the edges between right and wrong. That is how so- civil society can live, but not only just a political society, but a a sustainable one, a one where people can have choices of lifestyle within those confines of good mannerisms and good morals and good judgment and good character. So those are the, the principles and the ideas that really stem from John Adams and the kind of life that he led. Now, while this episode did not cover his entire life, certainly It is so challenging to do so, but I hope that you have learned something about John Adams and how he was not only one of the greatest signers, one of the most important men of our time, uh, even at that time, certainly, but he was also one of a brilliant mind and had a brilliant vision for what the United States can and should be. Thank you so much for listening to this episode about John Adams. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this show, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. Enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. See you all next time.